Hey everybody, welcome into Towing the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. This is episode five. I'm Justin Shackle, alongside with the five-time World Series champion, the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, and the statistician extraordinaire, James Smythe. David, World Series is over. The Atlanta Braves are world champs, and who could have possibly predicted that in late July, early August of this season? Maybe Trevor Plouffe. He seems like he had... <laughs> He had, uh, he had the answer all along, so that is pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, he not only, you know, Trevor not only picked the two teams, but he picked the game, game Braves in six, you know, very confidently back in March. So hats off to Trevor Plouffe. He's the, he's the guy we need to go to from here on out. Did you see the the setup that he had, though, watching that game and, and anticipating the final out? He had champagne, like <laughs> – within 10 seconds of Freddie Freeman catching that third out champagne was being doused all over Trevor Plouffe. Pretty remarkable. You know, it's, uh, he's a big part of John boy media. Now he's fun. You know, his shows are fun, fun to watch. Uh, he, he brings an interesting perspective to things. He's got a great personality, but he deserves it. I mean, when you, when you make that kind of prediction and stand on it and then it comes through, you know, I, I, that's off to him. As I said, you know, I, I'd pop some champagne for him as well. So the Atlanta Braves, they take it seven to nothing in game six. They take the series four games to two over the Houston Astros. And the city of Atlanta gets a title. It's the Braves, obviously, with their first title since 1995. But through blowing some series leads over recent seasons, Falcons, Patriots, that whole narrative, uh, it's, it's all put to bed now. The Braves have a championship. And, and James, when you take a look at this storybook run, right, there, there's some pretty interesting facts that put all this in perspective when you think, okay, you know, before the trade deadline and then post-trade deadline and the type of run they went on. Right. So on the one hand, you could look at the 2021 Braves and say they went 88 and 73, which is the fifth lowest winning percentage for any uh, World Series champion. Um, 2006 Cardinals. Uh, 87 Twins, 2000 Yankees, and the 2014 Giants are the only ones below them. But it's kind of a tale of two two teams, right? Because on the morning of August 3rd, they were 52 and 55, below 500, the longest, uh, the latest into a season for a team to be under 500 to win. Um, but since then, they went 47 and 23 from then on through the World Series. Uh, that's a 109 win pace over 162 games. So they finished the regular season 36 and 18, and then they breezed through the playoffs 11 and five, and they weren't in an elimination game. So uh, a pretty incredible run. And the other part of that is that if you're looking at the, the, the gauntlet they had to run, they went through the 95 win Brewers, the 106 win Dodgers and the 95 win Astros. So their combined winning percentage for those three opponents was 609 and that's the second toughest for any world series champ in the wild card era um only behind the curse breaking 2004 red sox who went through the angels yankees and cardinals yeah the braves are the eighth sub 90 win world series champion in league history for a full season so a lot of people think that's such a remarkable story but if you were paying attention to what they were doing since that early august starting point you know, th this doesn't come as a shock because they were playing just as well as any of the hottest teams uh, in baseball. So we're going to take you through this game. We're going to do it with a pitching spin, of course. 
And we're going to hear David's thoughts. We're going to get our thoughts as well. But David, before we get into what we saw from Max Fried, Luis Garcia, the bullpens here, you know, Brian Snitker and really Dusty Baker, there were, there were two great journeyman stories here going into this World Series. So Brian Snitker's journeyman story becomes complete. And it made me think a little bit about Joe Torre in 1996, because before 96, Joe had, had never won a playoff game in 14 seasons managing, and he never went to the World Series as a player. He was a great player, right? Gold Glove winner, all-star, uh, world uh, season MVP in, in 1970. But that year, he goes to the postseason. He goes to the World Series for the first time ever, and he wins it. And there were some personal adversity in Joe's life during that whole campaign. But from a baseball standpoint, I saw some similarities there. What were you and your teammates feeling for, for Joe that night that you clinched, you closed out the Braves in that game six in the Bronx? And what was you know said to him during those moments of celebration? Because I feel like, again, it, it could be similar to what some of the Braves personnel was saying about Snitker last night. Yeah, Justin, it's a great lead. You know, there's a couple of things come to mind for me. Uh, watching the emotions of the managers last night. When Soler hit the big three-run home run, they had the shot of uh, Dusty Baker and his frustration in the dugout, how much it meant to him. You could see you know, he, an outwardly display of, of frustration. And then on the other end, Snicker, towards the end of the game, you could see him just not wanting to, like, uh, you know, uh, crack a smile. You know, you could see the tension, but you know that the game was almost a foregone con- conclusion at that point. And you know, a guy that spent all those years in the minor leagues, what a story he is. Um, never thought that day would come for him, and it came. So, yes, the, the thing I remember about Joe Torre was when we beat the Orioles in 1996, the famous Jeffrey Mayer series, as everybody likes to call it, even though I, I think that, uh, you know, we, we beat the Orioles pretty handily all year long that year. So that, that's for another day. But the look on Joe Torre's face in the clubhouse – in the dugout when we clinched. We're going to the World Series on the road at Camden Yards. Joe Torre starts to, to almost weep. His eyes started to well up. You could just see how much it meant to him. And as you said, Justin, there were so many human interest stories there. His brother Rocco had passed away throughout the season, sometime earlier in the season. His other brother, uh, Frank, needed a heart transplant during the World Series. It was uh, really dramatic as this was all unfolding as he's trying to to manage the Yankees to, to their first World Series championship since the late 70s. So, yes, I do see the emotion on veteran managers. It did remind me of Joe Torre back in 1996. I remember reading somewhere how, how you guys, during that, that plane ride after closing out the series with Baltimore, you gave him a, a standing ovation on the team plane. Was that true? That was true, yes. Uh, and I think everybody felt it. Uh, you know, we knew uh, that Joe Torre was – not only a great player, a great manager, he had broadcasted for the Angels for several years. He had really held just about every job you can hold in baseball. He was an MVP caliber player. He struggled the following year. He hit almost 230 in his next year after his MVP year almost and certainly saddled in there in those years. So he understood just about everything that could happen in a game. And it was his last chance. It was a complete gift for him. I think he probably thought he would never get another chance to manage uh, when George Steinbrenner hired him as the Yankees. And if you remember, uh, the front page, front pages of the, of the, of the papers were cool. And, you know, what, what, what are they doing hiring Joe Torrey? There's no way this is the right guy 
for the job. Well, uh, turned out he was indeed the perfect guy at the right place at the right time. And then you tie it back into Brian Snitker, over 40 years of being in the Braves organization, the bulk of that coming as, you know, a coach or some type of an instructor. Maybe it is on the major league level. But he also talked about after the game, the journey that you go through as, you know, as a as a baseball guy working in an organization. Sometimes you get recycled, you get reshuffled. Maybe you reach the majors in a coaching capacity and then they bring you back down to the minors. And, you know, maybe you spend five, six years Again, riding the buses only to get back up to the majors. So there was a period of recycling there. And then you tie it back to him winning second oldest manager to win his first World Series title at at 66 years of age. uh, Jack McKean, Panama Jack in uh, 2003, the oldest. So let's let's go through this game in order here. Good starting pitching matchup to start with Max Fried. And Luis Garcia and David, let's get to let's get to Max Fried first. Six scoreless innings on the night. He only gives up four hits, not too much hard contact either. He strikes out six and everyone was talking about him needing to make adjustments in this game based on what was happening earlier in the series. And that's all he kept doing in game six. He was making adjustments over and over different times through the lineup. What, what stood out to you? Well, we mentioned in his last start that he might've been a little bit unfortunate in terms of the quality of contact off of him. He had that one big inning, a couple infield hits, uh, certainly his exit velocity against him was, wasn't all that great. So it suggested to me that uh, he was due for a rebound start. And he was, uh, he probably had one of his best forcing fastballs of the year. Uh, when you look at the numbers and you peel back a few, few layers on, on the metrics, uh, you know, he had uh, 30 forcing fastballs he threw last night. 12 of them were either, called strikes or swung and miss. So that's 40% of his foreseen fastballs were either a called strike or a swing and a miss. So that, that's an extremely high rate for him. That set up everything. We we know from watching Max Fried that he's got a Sandy Koufax style, a curveball that he actually patterned after Sandy Koufax. Uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, as a side note, also pretty remarkable. Uh, I think probably the first Jewish pitcher in 50 years to, uh, to close out a clincher. You know, you got to go back to, Ken Holzman or Sandy Koufax. I think there's a short list of Jewish pitchers that were on the mound that actually clinched out a, a World Series game. Max Fried now on that list. And also interesting to note, you know, when he faced uh, Bregman, hey, how about an all-Jewish battery? How about that? Pretty remarkable. Hist- history in the making right there. So interesting side note for me. But uh, nonetheless, Max Fried was dominant with his four-seam fastball. He set the pace. He pitched inside. If you notice, early in some of those at-bats, he painted the inside corner with that four-seam fastball, which changed the whole equation. It opened up the outside part of the plate for all of his pitches, all of his off-speed pitches. But you could tell he was uber-aggressive last night, and in particular, establishing that fastball. It was an old-school start. We used to hear that growing up in the 80s, you know, uh, in, in the minor leagues in the 80s. Uh, Establish your fastball. Pitch off your fastball. Uh, everything else will fall into place. And Get deep into the game. You're the starting pitcher. Well, it, it was kind of a throwback start for Max Reed. He could have continued on but they have such a dominant bullpen and they're left-handed uh, pitchers. If you're a left-handed batter last night, you, you got no break for the Houston Astros. You got three really tough lefties coming at you last night. It didn't come easy though, right out of the gate, right? First two guys reach base. Altuve reaches on an infield single immediately in the bottom of the first. And then Michael Brantley reaches on that error, that weird play that happened at first where Freed actually has his ankle stepped on. He gets spiked. What are you thinking immediately after that happens? 
I'm thinking, how how is he walking? I mean, that was it was a, a, unbelievable. I guess it was just the angle, you know. And, and he's a pretty flexible kid that he got himself at an angle to where the way his foot was stepped on, you know, it didn't really roll his ankle. It didn't really cause much damage. I'm sure it did not feel very good, but nonetheless, I think he was very fortunate to survive that. Uh, it, it's, it's a multitasking play for pitchers. You got to find the ball on the flip from the first baseman, you got to find the bag at the same time. You got to avoid the runner. It was, uh, you know, maybe two out of three, he got right there, but he couldn't find the bag and got his foot in the way and, and certainly got trampled on pretty well right there. And how did he recover? Because it, he, it was weird. It was almost like he flipped kind of a switch after that happened in terms of making the pitches, finding his location, because it, it didn't look as crisp in those first two at bats as it did the rest of that frame. And then beyond. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was a night of the pitcher's best friend. You know, he got a double play ball when he really needed it. Uh, he get the ball on the ground when he really needed it. And that's the thing about Max Fried. Even though he throws, and we talk about his four seam fastball, and his velocity was up a tick last night, and he can get it up to ninety seven at times, ninety eight even touch it. But he throws a two seamer as well, so he can get the ball on the ground. Uh, he's a complete pitcher. That's that's one of the things I really love about him going forward is. Four seam, two seam, curveball, slider, change up. He's got the formula. He's got all the pitches. He knows how to use them. Uh, and, and certainly he's got great mechanics, that delivery, that beautiful left-handed delivery he has, I think, is sustainable, as they say, from the eye test. You know, I, there's all sorts of uh, medical metrics you can use nowadays to sort of try to predict injury or to look at mechanics, biomechanics, and study them. And that's what every major league front office has is a biomechanics team that could study the movement of the human body, especially pitchers, and see whether it's sustainable or they're injury-prone. Max Fried's got a beautiful delivery. I'm sure that all the biomechanics people look at that delivery and say that that's sustainable. That looks good to me. You look at the other side with Luis Garcia starting on short rest, and and James has alluded to what those numbers look like uh, during this postseason, during the wildcard era. It's not favorable for the guy going on short rest, but he looked pretty good over those first two innings. It was a good pitching battle through the first two frames between Freed and Garcia. But then that third inning happens. And James, you kind of called it. We were glossing over game six, possible game seven, making those predictions. And you mentioned a, a pool Holzian moment, so to speak. It happens here in that third inning with that bomb from Jorge Soler to just crack the door open a little bit for the Braves against Garcia. Yeah, so uh, the the Pujols versus Lidge home run that was a seeming gut punch in 2005, and then they just shook it off and clinched the very next game. So it was a little little tie in there, and we saw them roll in the video um, at, in uh, Soler's second at bat uh, after the home run uh, that they they kind of made that tie into. But uh, I don't think that that has that home run even landed yet. <laughs> yes. I, I read that it took about eight minutes before someone actually picked the ball up on the street because no one was in that vicinity where that ball landed from more. It was definitely, a, it was a Ray guy punt. It was yeah. 5.8 seconds of hang time, 110 miles an hour off of, off of the bat. And you know, it, 103 feet in the air it got at its apex. So it was an absolute rocket, uh, you know, and then one of those home runs, you know, when he swings the bat, Solaire, I mean, he looks Kind of like Mike Tyson back in his in his prime, looking to do you know had bad intentions behind his punch. Hopefully, Soler has got bad intentions when he swings a baseball bat. David, I want to get your thoughts on this particular moment because 
we had talked about in the episode earlier this week about the difference between poor pitch selection and poor pitch execution. And Garcia, look, he had his cutter working pretty well those first two innings. And then you start seeing some signs where he's possibly cracking here in this third inning. He allows a single, he allows a walk. And then those breaking pitches to Solaire and the broadcast was, was mentioning it. And it was so clear to the eye that Solaire was timing him up with each one and the fastballs were coming and, and both pitchers, both starters were locating their fastballs. Well, it was effective. They were, they were locating them low, but then on three, two to Solaire, you see a, a fat cutter blasted out. And immediately I'm thinking, yes, poor pitch selection. I mean, poor, poor, excuse me, poor pitch execution for sure. Is it possible for the two to kind of dovetail one another though, because of what we had seen in prior pitches and how Solaire was getting his timing right with that cutter. That's a great point, Justin. I mean, two things can be true at the same time, right? It could be poor pitch execution. It could also be a bad sequence, a bad reading of the bat, as we say, you know, the old school, you know, let's read the bat as we go along. Certainly to me still has a place in the game. Uh, If you, and and actually John Smoltz was all over this in the broadcast and talking about the timing of Solaire starting to time up the the cutters and the sliders uh, that, that he was seeing and, and starting to kind of catch up to them. So the problem you have there is on a three, two pitch as a pitcher and speaking from experience, when I'm on the mound, you've got a long at bat, you've got a powerful right-handed batter. It's a three, two pitch. You don't want to give in and throw a fastball. So you're going to, you're going to commit to off speed. You're going to commit to your cutter but you know that you can't really bounce it or get it too far off of the plate or out of the strike zone because then it's a walk. So then the mistake becomes out up and over the middle of the plate because you're trying to make it close to a strike or make it a strike on a 3-2 pitch. And Solaire has seen several of them. And so the bat just goes right to the ball. The timing is there. And, and then the last part, the execution was not there on the pitcher's side. And that's what happens. You know, uh, a hitter can hit those sliders that hang or those cutters that hang. They go a long way. I gave up a lot of them in my career and I know what they feel like. And uh, right out of your hand, it's almost like, you know, it, you see it spinning. You see that sort of cement mixer, the axis uh, of the, of the spin on the breaking ball just kind of sits there. I call it taking a seat. That pitch pulled up a chair, took a seat and said, here you go, Jorge Soler. I'm here for you. I'm sitting right here. Despite the the count being three, two, and I understand the, you know, the whole thing about not wanting to throw a fastball there when you are on the mound, and you are, you're seeing, you're, you have to be observant of this when you're watching a hitter get that timing right on those breaking pitches. What is going through your mind? You know, it's two thoughts there. You factor in that Soler will chase. He does have a high chase rate out of the zone. We've seen him chase in his previous at-bat, a, a really well-executed breaking ball that looked like a strike and ended up out of the, out of the strike zone. That's the pitch you got to take the chance on. You have to commit to it. If you're going to throw a breaking ball, even if it's a 3-2 count, you have to bank on the fact that Solaire will chase. You've got to get the pitch in a position that looks like a strike and then is just off the plate. Solaire will chase it. It will induce weak contact, you hope, or a swing and a miss. Uh, if you're trying to throw a breaking ball for a strike to a hitter like Solaire, that's the mistake. And I'm, 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 I'm thinking that he wasn't. I'm thinking he just tried to snap off and, and get good spin on one of his cutters and hope for the best. But at that point, when you kind of don't finish it and you leave it in the middle of the plate, you're asking for trouble. And James, we could kind of put a bow on 
pitchers going on short rest now for for this season, tied it all in. What are the uh, what are the what are the final numbers as Luis Garcia pitches on short rest? Looks effective over the first two frames, but hits that wall in the third. Right. We we hit on this in the last episode. Postseason starting pitchers on three days rest versus four days rest in the wild card era since 1995. So we'll just finish it up here. Uh, normal rest, four days rest, three six four ERA. Uh, on three days rest, four five eight. So almost a full run higher. The batting average jumps from two thirty seven to two sixty three. The strikeout to walk ratios down. And the team record, 48 and 71, when they're pushing a starter up to go on three days rest in the postseason in the wild card era. And like uh, we mentioned uh, in the last show, that kind of undersells it too, because you're usually leaning on your better guys uh, to, to go in those spots than your average starting pitcher. So um, almost a full run higher. And we saw Garcia look fantastic in the first inning or two. And then the wheels kind of came off a little bit. And and then a postseason elimination game, all it takes, a couple base runners and a three-run bomb, and now you're up against it. And David, quick aside, as you know, you go through the inning by inning, each time that the, the Braves scored their big runs, Max Fried comes back out and faces the minimum. We always hear how important that is. But look, I mean, game six, World Series closeout game, just for him – and the way his night developed, how big were those two frames? It was the third, and it was in the bottom of the fifth as well. It's another one of those human element things that are hard to quantify. Uh, you feel it on the bench. There's a confidence factor that you feel. His body language on the mound, Max Fried, was so good. And to your point, when he was given the lead after the Solaire home run, it looked like he got even better. There was a determination about him. And, and the rest of the bench sees that and you feed off of it and it builds confidence. And how do you, how do you put a number on that? I don't know. You know, do your hitters suddenly become better hitters because your pitcher's confident on the mound and has good body language? I doubt it, but collectively it's a great feeling in that clubhouse and in that, in that dugout. When you see that happening, when you see that unfolding, uh, I don't know if it equates to a win or not, but it sure equates to good feelings on that bench and, and players who feel a little more confident and, Confident players are dangerous players. Throughout Max Fried's night, I think based on what we saw in game five, Astros being back at home, you're kind of waiting over those first four or five innings to see this Houston lineup get going here, you know, start running out of the gate and, and chip away a little bit. I know you don't like to second guess, David. So this is what I'm here for, right? Uh, fifth inning, this is kind of where I feel like the game was lost a little bit. It's the fifth. Christian Javier is in there in the top of the fourth. Pitches well. And I know he's a, a multi-inning guy. He's made starts here. But in a 3 nothing game at that point, you got to keep it at 3 nothing based on the way Freed is pitching. You have to, I feel like, make the Braves believe, hey, that's all you're getting here. And I think, conversely, it allows the Astros lineup to think, hey, we're, you know, we're staying super aggressive. They're not going to gain another run. It's like, oh, remember the Titans line. We're not going to gain another yard on us. So I, I really felt it was really important to keep it at three, nothing. And with Javier, you're asking for a second clean inning from, from that pitcher. And I know again, multi-inning guy, do you allow him to face Dansby Swanson again in that spot in that fifth inning? 
for a chance to, to blow the game wide open. A little context, obviously, game four, Swanson starts off the front end of the back-to-backs off Javier, and you saw him not – you saw Javier not be as effective right out of the gate. He, he gives up a leadoff walk a couple batters later. It's the Swanson home run. So, yeah, Monday morning quarterback and call it whatever you want. Is Javier the guy there for that second inning when you have someone like Luis Urquidy who in retrospect now kind of looks like you were saving him for a game seven. What did you make of that whole fifth inning? Yeah, I, I think the fact, you know, going back even further, you're right. Uh, let me start at the back. That one inning of Rikidi the other night threw off everything a little bit. You, you had to force, it forced your starting rotation on short rest. And then you're saving Rikidi for game seven potentially. And he could have been in your game six guys. So yeah, there's all sorts of uh, food for thought there. Uh, to your point, yeah, it's, it's it's valid. You're down three to nothing. The problem in these big games is that the three-run home runs or the big home runs happen so quickly. It's hard to get out of it. It's hard to get a pitcher ready. It's hard to predict that. Uh, you, you hope for the best with your pitchers that they'll avoid a big pitch that's going to allow them, you know, a, a one of those type of uh, crooked innings or, or uh, you know, three-run blasts, so to speak. So, yes, it is valid. Uh, it's early in the game, but you're already down three to nothing. Should you go to Maton right there? in a big spot to try to get a strikeout, to miss a bat. Uh, you know, only Dusty knows. He knows his pitching staff. He knows the tendencies. He knows how they felt. He talked to them before the game. I'm sure it was all hands on deck. You know, there's there's no rest for the weary at this time of year. So certainly everybody was available. But, yes, yeah, and all valid points. You could go back and point to that right there and say, you know what? Uh, yeah, maybe we should have got – maybe we should have gone to our, our best right-handed reliever on Swanson right there to get out of that inning and maybe even get a strikeout. Yeah, it's things when you look back on it. Obviously, Maton finished out the frame, so you think, oh, well, why couldn't he, he have started there? But also thinking about the, the desperation factor of, you know, having Urquidy available out of the bullpen even for, for this game, right? You plan for game seven when you get there. This may have been that lane if you didn't want to start that that chain of Maton and Stanek and, and Presley and those guys – that early so to speak so it, it, it's painful to me I had no rooting interest yeah. here when you see like Jose Urquidy ending up throwing just six innings and 88 pitches great in points. the World Series so. great points wasted opportunities you kind of feel like you didn't get enough bang for your buck with Urquidy right and that one inning of work the other night that, that, that took him out of, of, of this game you know uh, in, in a clincher in a, in a game six so yes to me, that centers around, and that's common theme throughout the whole postseason. Was if you're going to use your starters in relief, you better get bang for your buck. You know, using Max Scherzer to close out a game—that was bang for your buck. Even though it impacted his next start, you, you know, you got you got past them, you got past that round because of using Max Scherzer in that closer spot. You know, way back when, seems like a long time ago. You know, when the Dodgers were still in it, right? That's how that's how fast these things move. How fast, but also how much of a grind each individual game is since that is ALCS, because I think that that's what it is. It's like, um, it, it's not a slog. Like the pace obviously is a little bit slow, but it's a grind. You're, you're grinding through pitch by pitch. So yeah, yeah. If Max Scherzer being on a mound feels like a month ago, instead of just 10 days, two weeks ago, you said earlier, Max Freed's outing was, an old school performance, so to speak. Seeing what happens to him in the sixth inning, 
gets through the, the order, but he's thrown a lot of pitches in that sixth inning. It's the top of the Houston lineup. They're seeing a lot of pitches, and he's done after 74 pitches, six scoreless innings. You see it both ways, but we're a little surprised that he, he didn't come out with a, a 7 nothing lead going into the seventh. A little bit, but the guy he brought in is pretty good. Yes. <laughs> this is a big part of your story here, and he got through six, and – I, I, I'm a big believer in having your big, powerful relievers come in with a clean inning. Um, you know, you could wait and say, okay, let's run Max Reed out there and until one or two guys get on base, and then we're going to bring in Matt Zek and, and, and have him put out the fire at that point. But to me, uh, you got a chance to get two pluses. Mel Stoudemire used to use it this way. When he'd come to me in a situation like that and say, look, you've pitched great. That's a positive. I'm going to take that positive, put it in the bank, and we're going to start off Jeff Nelson or Mike Stanton or Ramiro Mendoza with a clean inning. We're going to get a positive out of them. So we put him in the best position to get a plus. Now we get two pluses. So that's kind of the theory behind it is have your relievers, especially your, your, your big relievers with the big arms like Matt Zek has, have them start out with a clean inning. So I'm sure that's what they were thinking. Max Freed, great job. Could have continued, could have gone on. If this were 30 years ago, he probably would have thrown nine innings. He probably would have thrown a shutout, a complete game shutout. That's how good he was going. Uh, but in today's game, when you've got that many valuable relievers, that kind of those kind of arms, that kind of skill level coming out of the bullpen, it's hard not to use them. I mean, a left-handed pitcher throwing 99 miles an hour. You know, and this is another point, a quick point I'd like to make on the model of starting pitchers. You know, the old school model was – there was a big drop-off from your starting pitchers to your middle relievers 50 years ago, 25 years ago, 75 years ago. And that's why starting pitchers were pushed further. You know, he's our best pitcher. Uh, maybe you had a closer uh, who was pretty good that you could go to, you know, right. 25, 50 years ago. But those middle relief is the soft underbelly of the bullpens. That's no longer the case. Uh, the, the model of the big drop-off from starting pitching to middle relief is a thing of the past. You know, there's guys throwing 99 miles an hour you're bringing in that are your middle relievers now, upper 90s. And you've got two or three of those guys in every major league bullpen. So it's a different equation. If I'm, in, if I'm a manager, and it's hard not to look at that and say, you know what, I'm taking out my starter. I might be bringing in a better pitcher, or at least stuff-wise, somebody with better stuff for one inning. That, that, that's hard not to use, hard not to do. Yeah, two or three probably on average – for a team and here the elite teams right the Braves the Astros they got they have four or five guys they have nicknames for these groups and the uh the night shift comes in Matzik two scoreless innings ends a fantastic postseason and at this point seven nothing closeout game you try to not allow your your mind to go there right you don't want to go to that place where you're saying hey we're going to we're going to do this when you were in closeout games maybe on the bench with teammates wherever how often did you allow yourself to to kind of go to that place and say this is it you know it's in the bag guys we're good you know it's in those type of games you know you're you're up seven to nothing it's almost a foregone conclusion I don't know what the win probability was, 99 point something percent at that point going into the to last inning, and you've got that, that seven-run lead. Your mind races. You're all over the map. You're trying to enjoy it with your teammates. You're thinking about how you're going to react. Am I, am I going to run and jump on top of the pile? You know, Everybody always dreams about that 
that uh, sort of pile jumping in the middle of the diamond, uh, what that looks like. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what's going through your mind. Uh, you're not really worried about the outcome of the game. You're just, it's, it's, it's almost as if you're just almost just trying to take it all in and trying to uh, figure out what you're going to do, you know, where you're going to be on this pile, what's going to happen with the celebration, who are you going to go try to hug, who do you want to thank? You know, there's, there's a million different things racing through your mind at that moment when you're, you're one step away from climbing over the dugout wall and running out to the middle of the diamond and jumping, jumping into a big pile. Was there one guy that you had in mind over the course of those four championships with the Yankees where everything is so close together? Was there, was there like one guy that you, you sought out first each time out or was it all different? It was different every year. It really was. Um, you know, obviously in 96, it was Tory because that was just, it was, that was, that was our mantra was get Joe Tory to the world series finally and see what we can do. Uh, in, in 98, it was David Wells. I thought he was the best pitcher in the American league that year, even though he didn't win the Cy Young. They had a guy named Pedro Martinez. That was pretty good that year. And, and uh, Roger Clemens was pretty good that year. So, uh, but David Wells was the guy after all he'd been through that year, he'd thrown a perfect game. The ups and downs, volatile personality, uh, interesting guy. There's a lot there. Uh, he was the guy in 98. Plus, he's from San Diego, and we beat the Padres there, so I knew it meant something to him. Uh, 99, we beat the Braves. And to me, it was El Duque in 99. You know, he was so much a part of our team at that point. He'd established himself as a big game pitcher in a short period of time from 98, the year previously. And then in 99, he started game one of the World Series. El Duque starting game one and stuffed the Braves in 1999, set the tone for that series. We ended up sweeping that series uh, in, uh, from the Braves. So, you know, uh, that's the guy I wanted to grab and say, thank you. You know, a lot of times it's, uh, you want to say, thank you. Thanks for getting us here. Thanks for, thanks for your contribution. Uh, you know, those are the kind of things that are going through your mind at that point. You know, somebody who did something to you, maybe it was a pitching coach or even a bullpen coach or a bullpen catcher that showed you something that got you over the hump. You want to make sure you get to that that person and give him a big hug and just say thank you. We did it. We did it. Thank you. What about in Toronto with the Blue Jays? You know, the Blue Jays, it was a little different scenario for me. I was there for two months. I got traded towards the end of the year after the, the trade deadline. Um, I was actually – I pitched the last game, game six in 92 in Atlanta. Again, there's a theme here with the Braves. Three times with the, against the, in the World Series against the Braves on, on teams I was on. I was sitting in the clubhouse, icing my shoulder, uh, and Paul Beeston, longtime front office executive, one of the best in the game, widely beloved, uh, would be down in our clubhouse watching the games with us. He liked to mix it up with the players, and it was him. He was the guy I was with. I brought him out on the bench, gave him a hug, made sure that all the players, you know, could interact with him as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, when I think about Toronto, I think about Paul Beeston. I think about Cito Gaston. Cito Gaston, one of the great managers, had a great run back then in the early 90s. I know what it meant to him as an African-American, as a black manager, to be able to win a World Series championship. That was a big deal back in 1992 for Cito Gaston. He was the story as well back then and ended up going back to back. They won again the next year in 93. So, you know, uh, when you think about the Blue Jays, you can't, you can't help but think about Cito Gaston as well. He's the first African-American manager to, to win the World Series, correct? I believe so. Yes. And yeah. uh, it, it was, uh, it was a big deal then it's still a big deal. Um, you can ask Dusty Baker about that, how he feels about it. Certainly he wanted to be the guy as well. Uh, so yes, uh, you know, Cito Gaston 
a legendary manager, one of the all-time greats, a Hall of Famer in my He was indeed uh, the first and then joined by Dave Roberts. And Dusty and the Astros on the uh, unfortunate end of the night shift here in the 2021 World Series with Matzik. And in this game, you didn't see A.J. Minter. You didn't need it. Matzik went two innings. Will Smith gets the ninth. Just to recap here, looking at these numbers, uh, Matzik for the postseason. He ends up allowing three runs in 15 and two-thirds, 24 strikeouts to only four walks. Minter, again, didn't pitch in game six, but 12 innings, eight hits, four runs, 18 strikeouts and four walks. So 18 Ks and 12 innings jumps out at you. And then Will Smith, six for six and save opportunities in the postseason, 11 innings pitched overall, five hits, eight strikeouts, three walks. He gets that final out. We always hear about pitching that last inning, making that last pitch to close out, get the championship. James, he does it against Yuli Gurriel, the batting champion to close out the World Series. Pretty impressive, pretty rare, huh? That is uh, unique out of the uh, the 117 World Series that we've had. Uh, it was just the fourth time that a league batting champion was making the last out of a World Series. So we have Yuli Gurriel grounding out uh, 6-3, Dansby Swanson and Freddie Freeman off Will Smith last night. Uh, we also had 2012, uh, Miguel Cabrera winning a batting title as part of his uh, Triple Crown MVP season. He gets frozen by Sergio Romo closing it out for the Giants, if uh, a lot of you might remember that one. Uh, also, 1984, Tony Gwynn, uh, the great Tony Gwynn flying out against uh, Willie Hernandez, who was that year's uh, American League uh, Cy Young Award winner uh, for the Tigers. And then the, uh, the only other one, we have to go all the way back to the very first World Series in 1903. Wow. Honus Wagner of the Pirates striking out against Boston's Bill Deneen uh, to close out the very first World Series. And now here we are 118 years later with another batting champ uh, as that last out. And one thing, too, uh, that I think is interesting, it was a closer closing out the World Series. Over the last several years, we've kind of seen um, either uh, makeshift midseason pickups or starting pitchers coming out of the bullpen to close it out. We saw Julio Urias uh, last year. For that, uh, Daniel Hudson, Chris Sale, Charlie Morton, uh, Mike Montgomery, who was kind of just slotted in for the Cubs, uh, Madison Bumgarner. So we hadn't really seen, you know, that season's set closer closing out the World Series for the champs. It's a good point. I'd have to imagine that Bill Deneen also threw that first pitch in 1903 in that closeout game. But uh, he, you know, he, he, when you when you think about the way like the modern bullpen is set up where does the night shift come into play here i mean you can you can hopefully do away with the recency bias but yeah how does it stack up in the postseason bullpen pantheon with some of the all-time great october pens you know the nasty boys with the reds the wetland rivera formula the the royals of, of 2015 james was saying it's pretty rare for a closer over recent history to actually close out the game, but we've seen some pretty incredible bullpens over the last 30 years or so. Well, you know, James can probably put it into a little perspective from a number side, but I can just tell you this, that, that you know, this particular version, the night shift and then the Braves, the way they're set up are death, death on left-handed batters. I mean, maybe the most dominant left-handed uh, relief uh 
courts that we've seen in a long time. And then when you throw Max Fried starting the game, it's uh, it's wow. I mean, if you're Jordan Alvarez, you're like, man, I can't catch a break here. I mean, he's going to face three different lefties tonight. So, yes, uh, from the left side, as good as, as anybody we've seen when they stack those lefties on top of each other. But yeah, that, that's a tough matchup for, for any left-handed batter. Right. And the, the, the interesting thing with this group is it's not maybe the, maybe the best one in the recent years in the last decade or so, maybe that HDH uh, Herrera Davis Holland trio for the Royals. Those guys dominated all year long. The Braves, this Braves group kind of a little up and down during the season, but the important thing was that they all stepped up big time in October and it, People always say, you know, bullpens uh, have the most volatility um, as far as day-to-day performance or week-to-week, month-to-month. And it's just a matter of these guys all got right at the same time. And I think game six, the final game of the season, encapsulates encapsulates how well and how dominant this entire staff was. The big players, obviously freed at the front end, but Matzik, Smith, the Astros were held scoreless. They only had three runners in scoring position all game. Uh, Houston's the first team to be shut out in the final game of the World Series since the Astros in 2005 when they, they lost to the White Sox in game four of the 05 World Series. They were swept there. So they put a stamp on their dominance in October with this game six win. Seven nothing victory. Braves take it in six. They're uh, their fourth World Series championship in team history. First since 1995. Puts a wrap on the baseball season, but in this postseason, guys, what do you think we learned about pitching during the playoffs and in this World Series in 2021? Well, one thing is for sure is that never in modern history have the bullpens been deeper or better. Uh, Velocity plays up. There's more power arms in the bullpen than ever before. And, you know, I can only – maybe I could – throw out an example if you remember the Yankees uh, back when Jabba Chamberlain broke in the Yankees had Mariano Rivera closing they had uh, you know a pretty good bullpen again a mix mixing and matching nobody really overpowering and Jabba Chamberlain came on board and he was like oh we got one of those guys that can throw a hundred with a nasty slider and the, he lit up the fan base because we have one of those arms well there's it's almost like you clop you, you sort of clone Jabba Chamberlain there's every, every major league team has some of those arms going now. So the overall depth, the power, the quality of pitching, uh, top to bottom, especially in the bullpens, has clearly changed the game. Uh, managers don't know what to do. or yeah, They do know what to do. They get the starter out earlier. But that's the reason why starters are pitching fewer innings is because there are so many more choices in the bullpens nowadays. And, you know, case in point is right to this year. When you think about it, even though, as James said, so they kind of struggled a bit during the regular season. They got it going late. They had the formula. And if you're a manager, after six innings, you got Max Reed with 74 pitches. Hmm, do I run him out there for the seventh, or do I bring in this guy that is an incredible story that throws the ball 99 miles an hour and, and, and is on a run? Uh, the choice was clear for me. You, you bring in Matzek because he's such, such a dominant, powerful left-handed arms, and you know you could use him. For two innings, which is exactly what they did. So, you know, to me, that's the key to the game. The bullpens have changed dramatically over the last 20 years, even longer. Uh, They are better than ever. The pitch designs, 
the biomechanics labs are working. Pitchers are, are learning how to mirror their spin. Relievers are getting better than ever. They're learning how to shape their breaking balls in these pitching laboratories. Uh, the pitching, the pitching, and the the, uh, the way it is being taught today is ahead of the game right now. And the hitters, hitters need to catch up. And I'll jump in and off and piggyback off that because you're mentioning how great the relief pitching has been, and I think we all should pump the brakes on the death of the starting pitcher. As we saw with Max Fried last night, he was great. And a lot of the struggles with the starters this year, they weren't pitching well. That's why they were taken out of the game. We saw all those quick hooks. If we look at the starts where the pitcher went five plus innings this October, it was 2.51 ERA. That's pretty great. But this, all the starts of 4.2 innings or fewer, the ERA combined in the playoffs was 744. So, yeah, the, the pitchers are going to get yanked because they're giving up a lot of runs and putting their teams in early deficits. As we saw with the, the first inning ERA, we've been touching on that all month. The first inning ERA this October was 5.47. So that's managers finding themselves in an early hole and trying to claw out of it. We, we can't afford to have a guy work his way through something in an elimination game when we're down three, nothing. It's about making those tough decisions, maybe being very aggressive in the heat of the battle there. Also you combine the ineffectiveness with a lot of guys going down as well. There, there was a lot of teams that had injuries. I mean, Braves and Astros right there, you know, injuries play a part of it as well. I think a little bit as also you could, you can make a point into the, the innings jump from 2020 shortened season to, to 2021. We can, dissect that at length over the offseason guys because it is a it's a good topic i think it's at the forefront with baseball and trying to figure out how they're you know going to be able to go about the balance of starting and relieving david i thought you were on point with that java comparison because as these years go by kind of thought about that two three years ago but more than ever now like java chamberlain was ahead of his time you saw what he was able to do in 2007. Now it's like every team has at least one job at Chamberlain. It's, it's incredible. When you look at the Braves journey, we documented it from just after the trade deadline, the incredible pace they were on as a team that gets to the postseason, marches through dynamite bullpen, able to close out the big bad Astros. What should the other 29 teams take away from the Atlanta Braves run to a title? You, you should uh, take away uh, that, how important it is to have a general manager, a front office, and an ownership never say die. If there was ever a time for the Braves to fold up ship and say, you know what, let's just uh, let's see if we could develop some young outfielders because they got wiped out with injuries. Uh, Ronald Acuna Jr., maybe uh, – one of the best players, you know, at, at the top or near the top of all, all the talent in the, in the outfield in, in today's Major League Baseball game. He is there. You lost him. You wiped out your, really your entire outfield. So, you know, Anthopolis, Alex Anthopolis goes out and says, you know what, I'm going to rebuild the whole thing. And, we're, you know, we're not going to give up. We're, we're still going to give this team a chance. Imagine that, trying to win. Even when your best players are hurt. No, we're not going to give in. We're going to continue to try to win. To me – Alex Anthopoulos deserves a lot of credit. The general manager for the Atlanta Braves, never say die. I'm not giving up on this team. 
a team that was not even 500 when he made those trades, a team that was hovering around 500. The one thing he had going for him was the National League East was still wide open. Nobody had taken charge. So he said, you know what? Why not us? And at the end of the day, it ended up being them. So uh, hats off to the Braves, Anthopolis, the, the ownership group. Uh, they, they did a great job. He should be the executive of the year in my mind. The Atlanta Braves really overcame a lot of odds. Braves take it in six. They win the World Series. They defeat the Astros. And that closes the book on the 2021 baseball season. Guys, I think it was awesome that we started this in this month of October. A lot of games and a lot of action to discuss, a lot of debates to be had. But we're going to roll into the offseason with a lot of momentum, a lot of juice as we gear toward 2022. There's a lot that needs to happen in between all that. But that's what we're here for. We're going to be discussing it each week so uh this was fun over the first postseason of towing the slab and i'm um, looking forward to talking to you guys each week through this post uh, through this offseason as we get going here every tuesday again every tuesday a regular episode drops of towing the slab so a big thanks to our great producer dan work thank you so much for listening and again what 100 james do you have this number how many days till pitchers and catchers? Days I knew we were going to have it, man. March 31st, 2022, hopefully opening day. <laughs> we got a long way to go, but 148 days away. Let's see if we get there. We'll, we'll awesome. cover you. Yeah, we'll cover you all offseason. We got pitching stuff, you know, through the holidays. Uh, you, you can buy, buy an arm. We're going to have maybe a little takeoff from the arm barn. So the nastiest pitches. If you could go to a store and buy a pitch, who would you – what would be your number one pick? You know, is it uh, Jacob DeGrom's fastball? You know, is it uh, Devin Williams's air bending changeup? We're going to get into that this offseason. And also labor negotiations. I was there. I was there in the middle of, of the 90s during the strike of 1994. So, uh, you know, I can fill you in, too, as this thing unfolds. So uh, this is the spot. Towing with the slab is the spot to come this offseason. That's right. James nailed the number of days till pitchers and catchers. You're talking about buying the arm holiday shopping. I, I would be really impressed if you knew how many shopping days were left till Christmas, but uh, either way, yeah, he's, he's 52. All right. Hard math, hard math. <laughs> As everybody else here at John Boy Media, we are not math podcasts. So uh, we'll close it out here and we'll, we'll talk to you on Tuesday. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening again. Thank you to our producer, Dan work. We will talk to you soon here on Toe in the slab pitching with David Cohn. Take care, guys.